gender and COVID-19. What are the lessons? What are the highlights? The topics that need to be addressed? And what are the questions that are still left unanswered? Those are the conversations that we are going to be addressing here in this video. This is part of a podcast led um, by me. I'm your host, Natalia Bonilla, international reporter and also speaker on international relations and womenhood issues. And um, I thought for this episode um, to talk more about the implications that this pandemic is having on women worldwide, but also on the world system. Um, I think it is time that we start engaging in a wider uh, conversation beyond, you know, protocols and measures that we need to take about clean your hands <laughs> with water and soap, please. Um, so here we are. And um, I want to start by um, something that really struck me a couple of days ago. Um, we were organizing a, a conference here in Mexico City. Uh, we were preparing a proposal for a conference on peace culture. And one of the things that we were thinking about that really was the, the main topic um, to be addressed in this conference was why peace um, generated so much conflict. Why talking about peace generated so much conflict. And um, it, it it really brought us to uh, different answers from the philosophical point of view to the humanistic point of view to you know politicians and economics standpoint and um, I think we found a correlation between peace as a topic and women as a topic um, both of them and this is something that has been um, already very well documented and researched, um, both of these concepts are considered similar, um, considered feminine in realpolitik, and as we know, those that study international relations may know, um, realpolitik does not uh, consider topic of peace as important, therefore um, peace and women cancel each other out in the real politic and in the international relations realm. We are seeing that the realist theory is the one employed by the states and also it is um, the most predominant one on international affairs analysis in mainstream media. So the focus on power, the focus on economics, the focus on politics, the, po the focus on the survival of a state, <laughs> these are not to be considered you know, a surprising um, topic of conversation that was suspected um, specifically because um, it is very well documented since the 1970s that world journalism is a still predominant one in the way that mainstream media, international mainstream media, approaches news events. And um, this is something that has been uh, wildly disputed by um, peace journalism um, uh, researchers and academics, including the incredible work by Johan Galtun, which is plain that peace journalism is not absent of focusing on conflict. It, do, it does focus on conflict, but peace journalism uh, goes to the root, to the cause of the conflict, rather than just focusing on its direct implications, which is what we're seeing right now. And in mainstream media, the focus has been with this war journalism narrative, 
to focus on, you know, the good versus bad. And what are the government officials saying? And less focus on the confirmed cases and death tolls rather than, okay, what is the origin of this pandemic? What are people doing? What are communities working together for? Um, what are the specific uh, needs of several vulnerable populations? What are the experiences of healthcare workers or healthcare professionals? Um, those are like the voices that we often um, do not see, you know, uh, on the front line of the newspapers. And we should ask ourselves why this is one of the reasons. Um, another reason, and, and one of the uh, conversations that we had previously in our Insta stories um, was that mainstream media right now, the, their home bases, their home countries where, you know, BBC, CNN, Al Jazeera, El País, all these, uh, including RT or, or uh, Reuters as well, um, Associated Press, you name it, those um, mainstream media outlets and news agencies, home countries are battling right now with this pandemic, with the outbreak. Um, it is uh, increasingly um, the, the, the main conversation for them. So they're not going to focus on other areas of influence, um, which is something that really should worry about all, all of us. Uh, specifically, the, the experiences of the global south. We're talking about Latin America and the Caribbean, Africa, Asia, Middle East, and even where there are reports of, you know, the pandemic, um, how, you know, the, the first confirmed cases in Palestine, in Syria, in Nigeria, in Colombia, in Ecuador, um, including the Philippines and Bali, <laughs> that, you know, paradisiac um, island. Um, it is important to see how these um, outlets from the north see the global south and what narratives and media representations are there they are reaffirming and they're reaffirming the lack of infrastructure you know like these doomsday scenarios because you know they do not have the same you know treatments and healthcare professionals as the north and um, you start seeing you know, how these uh, media outlets are promoting and also reaffirming social inequality between countries as well as uh, between um, parts of the, the population in each nation. Um, the same happens with women. And um, I think that's a, an incredible danger when we start seeing these parallelisms. Um, the first one to finish off <laughs> what I said before, um, the first one is, you know, nearly 189, uh, 189 million people around the world are needing humanitarian assistance. That's like 2019 UN statistics. And we are talking that that number probably would have been increased with this pandemic. And those people are part of development countries and also developing countries and are also uh, part of vulnerable communities and, you know, uh, refugee camps and migration waves. And what, what is their status? Those are like the real 
questions that we need to be asking because just recently um, some reports on refugee camps in Lesbos and the Greek islands were saying that some refugee camps and some refugee communities do not have water and soap. And the same goes with conflict zones. We're talking about Syria, which already has more than a decade of a new war that is so, so complex and with dire, dire humanitarian consequences. Uh, more than 500,000 people are estimated were killed in, during this period of time. We're talking about Somalia, we're talking about Palestine, we're talking about Nigeria, we're talking about Colombia, which re just recently you know, the ELN and one of the uh, main armed groups um, were saying that they will cease hostilities um, in this armed conflict um, during, you know, a quarantine period. And though um, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez has um, asked publicly for a global ceasefire, it is important to know that not all armed rebel conflicts follow international humanitarian law or do not care about what an international organization says, um, including the Islamic State was saying um, by the beginning of March that to, to, to its soldiers, hey, don't go to Europe, stay where you are. You, you don't want to be bringing the COVID-19 here. I mean, yes, we are talking about a major event that we have not foreseen in this type of generation. Um, I was reading that um, the, the, the way that these governments are functioning right now with these old national lockdowns are pretty much similar um, tactics to, um, in terms of narrative, in terms of narrative and species, very similar to what we saw in um, World War II. But um, for most of us that we did not live by that era um, that's very new to us and very foreign um, but you know the uh, baby boomers generation and their fathers and mothers um, do understand um, the, the the seriousness of this pandemic so um, the, there are, these are very important questions um, the biggest one um, still is women um, in, at least for me and that's part of my research as an academic as a journalist and as a reporter and something that I will continue focusing on because I find it fascinating not only because I'm a woman and I get affected by that but also because there are a specific type of women that gets represented which narratives are being all the time legitimized in mainstream media and all these biggest forums and these are not the women with my same skin color and with your same you know ethnicity race and class and uh, I think it is important to start engaging in a wider um, view and a wider analysis on your experience as a woman in your specific country with those specific measures that that country decided to take upon because as we have seen in other um, conflicts and in other um, problems around the world, global health issues and also environmental issues, um, there's not a one type of formula for us all. There are different cosmovisions of how things should be handled, different ways that cultures see 
um, pandemics and see viruses and treat um, social issues and they they need to be honored and I'm not saying that these solutions that believing in religion that someone will save you or that you are untouched because you saw a medicine you took a medicine from a tree etc are good or bad I'm just saying it's different and we should also be aware that um, it, this is not about canceling things it's about understanding um, that one type solution may not fit us all and um, there's a conversation on international solidarity um, how this wartime or waging war kind of narratives from you know Western nations specifically the United States under Donald Trump are um, proposing um, to eliminate this virus you know try trying to find a treatment trying to find a vaccine which if you are a king of history. I invite you to start looking about um, looking how the United States and China are waging a war on who gets the vaccine first. Um, something that is similar to the missile crisis that we saw in the 1960s. Um, so it is important to know that, and I invite you to check it out because it's very, very interesting. Um, that's uh, a part of it. And the second part is um, by World Water Day 2020. I had um, uh, several interviews. I made several interviews for my social impact blog, Lumina. And one of the things that I found extremely, extremely um, enlightening was to interview um, two founders of clean water initiatives in Africa. And one of them, I want to um, tell you their names. Uh, I interviewed blood water founder Dan Hasseltine which has this initiative that provides clean water access and equipment to um, more than five, six countries in Central and Eastern Africa, but specifically focusing on HIV and AIDS populations. And um, I also interviewed um, Water for Good CEO uh, John Allen, which is uh, Water for Good is an organization that provides wash solutions to Central African Republic. And both of them, we talk about the coronavirus and how the coronavirus was going to take, you know, the outbreak uh, was going to be taken down by, you know, the whole coverage of the outbreak. And one of the things that we were discussing was two things. The first is how when the HIV and AIDS um, pandemic uh, epidemic uh, broke out, the outbreak um, was, you know, a, a, a worldwide phenomenon in the 1990s. Um, it was, you know, there was not the same mobilization as this pandemic. There was a lot of shame attached to that because of the whole concept of HIV and AIDS being related to sex and blood. Meanwhile, because of SARS, MERS, and COVID-19, all these coronaviruses are, you know, attacking the respiratory system and breath is life, um, then probably we should, you know, not shame these people because, you know, this is an invisible enemy. Meanwhile, HIV and AIDS, there's this old stigma that you got it because probably you had sex. Um, that is disregarding that many of the people that have HIV and AIDS, specifically in Africa, which was the area that we were uh, talking with Dan, 
you know, they, they, they're children born with HIV and AIDS from their mothers. And, you know, this is not something that they did to get or contract this, you know, uh, virus or, or, or disease. And they are getting punished. They're getting banished from communities. They are being ignored. And um, that's so interesting to see. And the other thing that I want to highlight was um, interviewing Waterford Good CEO John Allen. He was telling me that um, in Central African Republic, and that this is something that we see also in other cultures in Africa, people are taught to endure a disease. They're not taught to eliminate a disease or annihilate it or find a vaccine and you know get rid of it. And probably is because you know they do not have the strongest healthcare systems or, you know, a lot of focus of the government on healthcare as priority, etc., which is something that may be changing after this COVID-19 pandemic. Um, but yeah, um, it, it's so interesting how we are seeking to eliminate this invisible enemy in the Western societies and this wartime pre president waging the good war, as Cynthia and Loy um, academic used to say just recently I am gonna share with you that link on the episode um, post but one of the things that um, is interesting to notice that in a war you want to declare victory and this victory that we want to declare is against an invisible enemy it is still very much masculine hegemonic masculinity it's like we want to eliminate the other it's like we're not gonna live with this disease. We're gonna survive it together. We're gonna unite and we are gonna become soldiers protecting the community against this virus that is, you know, depleting our economy, that is disrupting our way of life, and we're not gonna allow it. And this is so, so interesting because the same dynamics that we're seeing in traditional wars, we're not talking about new wars here, in traditional wars are being reinforced on these ones and um, on this specific time. And lastly, because I'm extending too much this episode, um, I want to share with you this whole um, conversation on women because that's part of why we're here. Um, there's this research by The Lancet magazine um, um, how uh, past outbreaks show the importance of incorporating a gender analysis into preparedness and response efforts to improve the effectiveness of health, um, the, of health um, issues and, and the health policies. And um, it brought into light how in 2014, 2016, with the um, Ebola outbreak in Western Africa um, showed women taking a predominant role, which we're seeing right now with COVID-19, a predominant role in domestic care, in taking care of patients and their being the top victims because they contract the virus and because you know, they're not legitimized as actors specifically in these societies. And still we can say the same in Western societies that our roles are still overlooked. Um, they're um, seen as these caregivers uh, and these frontline workers, healthcare workers, we need to know 70% of the global healthcare professionals around the world are women. We're talking about nurses, doctors, 
you know, cares, etc. This is not, um, uh, this is important to know that these are women, 70% of them, and also the ones taking care of the patients back at home at quarantine, um, they were less likely, according to this report by The Lancet, they were less likely than men to have any say, any power in decision making, which is also what we're seeing right now with this COVID-19, who are at this table, decision making tables of these G20 countries, of this global task force to end the COVID-19. White males in power. And um, that brings a whole new level of conversation if we want to bring intersectional feminism and post-colonial feminism as well. Um, but I'm going to leave it there and share with you some questions that UN Women um, released a report on you know, how gen this pandemic is not gender neutral. But um, the UN, uh, UNIDR, DIR, um, shared a couple of questions on how to apply gender lens to public health emergencies, and I want to share some with you. What are the different needs and priorities of women and men in the context of the proposed policy? What roles do women and men perform in the context of the policy? What resources, economic, financial, physical, natural, and other access, as well as information, do women and men have access to? Because also we are seeing Latin America and Asia, in Africa, even in developed countries, there are communities that are being silenced. We don't know how they're experiencing this pandemic. And that's something for mainstream media work to do, but also for governments to address as well. And we are seeing huge, huge uh, violations of human rights, not only in China, but also in Iran. And um, lastly, I want to pinpoint that um, specifically in the case of Iran and China, um, I wrote that what we're seeing um, in the United States is a rise of um, sales of small arms during the COVID-19 as a preventive measure um, to future outbursts of violence because we're, you know, uh, preparing ourselves for doomsday according to the media. That's something that we need to be preparing for. And according to the media and also the types of sources that the media always talks about is always referring to political officials. They're not giving anybody else a voice. So there's no other alternative reality that we can escape to or that we can you know, cultivate to, you know, it's like communities are on their own. And this is very worrisome. But what we are seeing is going to that route, we're seeing in other countries such as Spain, United Kingdom, and Italy, national lockdowns, and even, you know, military um, patrols, but also in Iran and China, gross viola violations of um, human rights and freedom of liberty and, you know, preventing citizens from going out of their homes with, you know, we're, we're going to get you to prison. It's not about like, here, here's a fine of $5,000 or stepping out, even if just to take a breath of air. Um, no, it's like, we're going to take you to jail because you're probably, you know, trying to get contaminated and, you know, uh, expose other people to this pandemic, this invisible threat. Um, yeah, so these, these are 
um, conversations that we need to have. We could talk about human rights, but I guess for me, the biggest conversation is still the one that we need to have still not being addressed and as simple as how we are seeing each other, how are we treating each other, and how do we perceive the future of humankind. If you're interested in topics of gender and COVID-19, I invite you to check. I've shared this in my Facebook group, but I'm going to share it with you as well in the links below. One of the things that you will find is uh, the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy in the UK made a special report that I totally recommend. It's so, so good. It has key considerations specifically on domestic uh, violence uh, cases uh, being you know, um, rising um, more confirming cases on domestic violence due to stress, financial stability, and also, you know, social dynamics that were still taking place that get heightened with these isolation measures and self-quarantine uh, measures. Um, the, it also talks about sexual and reproductive health um, measures being limited even more because of this present pandemic and why always the, uh, this crisis, the governments always tend to cut for um, women's access to resources. Again, a gender issue. Also, the John Hopkins University created a gender and COVID-19 research directory with more than 100 resources for you to check out. So I invite you to, you know, go online and find that out. And also the Women's International um, League for Peace and Justice um, also has very good um, articles by Cynthia and Loe and other academics on militarization against the COVID-19 and the future. Uh, for women worldwide and how can we achieve social justice, how this is the time to start um, shifting the paradigm. So I invite you to send me your questions and to look forward to your feedback on this episode and look forward to continue um, engaging with you on video and also on the waves, the radio waves. So thank you so much for tuning in and see you soon.